Well, good morning once again, sisters and brothers in Christ. It's always a privilege, and I mean this sincerely, it's always a privilege to be able to come up here, and even after it's been a very busy week and you haven't had as much time to put the sermon together as you would have liked, it's still always a privilege to be able to preach from God's Word. We are engaged in a series right now called Foundations for Flourishing. So we're looking at the first three chapters of Genesis, believing that this book is to help us live a flourishing life by giving us worldview foundations. So this morning, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, just the first five verses. Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Beloved, listen to God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A little girl, six years old, was sitting down with her family at the dinner table, and they invited another family over to share dinner with them. And the mother asked the little six-year-old girl if she would be willing to pray. And she said, oh, but mom, I wouldn't know what to say. And the mother said, well, just say what you hear your father saying. So she folded her hands and closed her eyes and said, Oh, Lord, why do we always invite people over? (laughs) C.S. Lewis once got onto a train in the first-class section, and an older woman came up to him, very well-dressed, and Lewis wasn't really well-known for dressing all that well, and he had had an arduous day of work and was looking a bit disheveled, and she said to him, I am sorry, sir, but you need to have a first-class ticket to be in this train. And he said, I am well aware of that, ma'am, but I need mine for myself. He was a man of quite some wit. He was a man of powerful words. And, beloved, I want to talk to you this morning about the power of words. I want to talk to you about the power of speech. If you were with us last week, you will know that we looked at just one word, the opening word of the entire Bible, the opening word of Genesis 1 in the Hebrew. It's just one word, barashit. It means in the beginning. And I suggested that if there's a beginning, there's an end. And if you have a beginning and end, then you also have a middle. And if you have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and a capital A author, then you have a story. We live in a storied universe, a universe that is going somewhere, a meaningful, purposeful universe. And therefore, if we are to find a foundation for flourishing, if we are to live a flourishing life, we must locate our small S story inside this capital S story, God's story in order to discover what role we're going to play. But today I want to talk about the power of words, and I want to because one of the major features of Genesis chapter 1, 
that comes up for the first time in the text that we have just read is that when the God of the Bible moves to make a world, he does so with words. He does so by engaging in a speech act. And this will hit most of us who are incredibly familiar with the Bible as somewhat unremarkable. What's the big deal? So God creates with his word. We read over it very, very quickly. But sisters and brothers, let me suggest to you that this is a remarkable feature of Genesis 1 when you compare it to other ancient Near Eastern creation stories. There were essentially two options of how the gods or God created the world in both Egypt and then the larger Mesopotamian world or Sumerian world or Canaanite world. Two ways. It was either by the gods engaging in sexual activity or the gods engaging in combat. It was either copulation or combat. That was the only two options. If you read primary texts from Egyptian creation stories, I would love to read some passages of them for you, but if this were a graduate-level class, I would read those texts, and I would also show you images from Egypt which show this. The world comes about when the God engages in sexual activity. It's far too graphic for me actually to read or to show you images from this pulpit, but that's how it came about. And it's kind of like in this instance that the gods were made in the image of human beings because how do we bring about something new in the world? We engage in procreation. And so it's understandable that you would think perhaps the gods did it in the same way. A world comes about by copulation. How else are worlds brought about with humans? How do you build a kingdom if you're a human? Well, often you engage in warfare with other nations and then build a kingdom up as you defeat other nations of the world. And in Sumerian and in Babylonian and in Canaanite literature, there's a similar story that we have. And it's, I can simplify it. On the one hand, you have a hero god. And on the other hand, you have another god who's personified, and don't miss this, who's personified as a chaotic sea monster. A chaotic sea monster. And the hero god and the sea monster god engage in a titanic battle. And it's a battle to the death. The hero god defeats this chaotic sea monster and then constructs his palace temple, which is the world that we see before us, out of his dead carcass. That's how the world comes about. It's either, for copu either through copulation or through combat. In the biblical world, the true God creates a world, he makes a world by speaking, through speech. And it's very important to notice verse 2. The element that's in Sumerian myth and Babylonian myth and these others in the ancient Near Eastern world, the feature is still there. If Genesis 1.1, I'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, if Genesis 1.1 is understood as a title, which it is. Scholars agree. Genesis 1, what is the title? It's a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now it's going to show you how that came about. The, the thing that we have at the beginning of Genesis 1 is, now, the earth was formless and empty. The Hebrew there is 
It's important because it's onomatopoeia, and it's beautiful, and I like to use this term, so I want you to know it. Tohu vabohu. The earth was tohu vabohu. It's chaotic. Darkness is over the surface of the deep. It's an image of chaos as well. And then, what do we have? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. It's not a sea monster per se, but it is the chaotic waters that are hostile to life. And the God of the Bible speaks and overcomes the chaos and brings about a world of beauty and order and life. He overcomes the chaotic waters, bringing about a life of beauty, order, and life. This is why in Psalm 93, Psalm 93, the author can say, mightier than the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. When he speaks, the chaos vanishes. The waters that are hostile to life go away. As if to underline this element, this feature that God makes the world by words, Ten times exactly in Genesis 1, ten times you have the phrase, and God said, and God said, and God said. It is exactly the same phrase in the Hebrew. Davar Elohim, Davar Elohim, Davar Elohim, Davar Elohim. Except in verse 28 when it is Elohim Davar, it switches it but ten times as if to underline the importance that in the biblical faith, God creates the world by words. It's repeated ten times. Because ten, as you know, along with the number seven, is a number in the biblical tradition of wholeness, of completion, of perfection. And this is the world that God creates. It's a good world. And what are we to take away from this fact that God then creates with his word? I think this is how we can put it today that is helpful. Words make worlds. In the biblical tradition, words make worlds. Most foundationally, words make worlds. And this isn't only true literally of the material creation, as it were, or the functional creation in Genesis chapter 1. But it is true of God making worlds, other types of worlds, with his word in Scripture. And it's also true of human beings in Scripture that the words that we use can create worlds for good or ill. And let me just illustrate for this a second, for a second because this is really important. You remember when Israel is in the land of Egypt, they are not yet a nation. They are a slave people. God rescues them by bringing them through what? The Red Sea with a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other. Does that sound like Genesis chapter 1 perhaps? God makes a separation between light and dark where the Israelites are going to be in the light and the Egyptians are going to be in the dark. Does that sound like Genesis chapter 1? He brings them across the sea on dry land. Look at the third day of creation. Does that sound like Genesis chapter 1? He's recreating a people his recreation of this people, his making them into their own world, which is to say their own nation, their own culture, comes to a climax when they come to Sinai 
and climactically God gives them the ten what? Ten commandments. You know what the Hebrew says? Literally it says, and God worded these words to Israel. God gives Israel not ten commandments according to the Hebrew, although of course they have the imperative force, but God gives Israel ten words. God worded these words to Israel. He's making Israel into its own discrete nation amidst the nations of the world that will form its own unique culture after God's designs for humanity. His word is a blueprint for humanity. Cultures, too, are worlds. This is why when you go to visit another country that is very much different from this country, you say, man, it was another world over there. We might say this when we go into certain households because they, the words, you know, we talk about scripts that we have when we're young or families live according to scripts. Those are patterns of words and they create worlds. Words make worlds. This happens with, the cult- with a culture, with Israel. It can happen in our households. It also happens with reference to the future a world picture emerges by words that are spoken. You see this in Israel's prophets. They forecast a world that is to come. They create a picture of a world with words that then we can begin striving toward, or then we can place our hope within. Essentially, Karl Marx did the same thing. So did Lenin. Yesterday, or yesterday, on Wednesday, was, or was it Wednesday or Thursday? See, my week is all wonky. George Muller's funeral a couple of days ago. What day was it? Thursday. I told you it was a long week. I read Revelation 21, where John tells us with words about the world that is to come. He creates a world picture in our mind with words. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and there was no longer any sea. The sea in Scripture, as we know from Genesis 1-2, is an image of chaos. In that day, there will be no more elements of chaos. They won't only be bounded, but they will completely vanquished. They will be completely gone. So we create cultures with our words, which are little worlds. We create world pictures of the future with words. But also, and I think very importantly, and this is important even more important for some of us than others, I think. But words create an interior world, particularly the words that we heard when we were young. They create a self-picture, and we can live out of this self-picture that we have received. Words from our parents, maybe words from our siblings, maybe words from classmates, words that either have brought us life or have brought us hardship and pain. In John chapter 9, the disciples and Jesus are walking along and they come up to a man who has been blind since birth. And the disciples reveal how people thought about people like that in their day. And they say, Lord Jesus, was this man born blind? Is it a result of his own sin or the sin of his parents that he is born blind? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says it's neither his sin nor the sin of his parents, but this happened so that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. 
This man, since he was born, is told that he's blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents. Imagine the interior picture, the interior world that this created for this man. You ought to be ashamed of your existence. You're suffering because you deserve to be. Shame, shame on you. Jesus explodes his interior world in order to make him new. It's not his sin. It's not the sin of his parents that he's born blind. But this happened so that the glory of God might be displayed in his life. And then notice in that text, Jesus gives him a word that will make him new. Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he came back seeing. He gives the man a whole new interior world to live and operate out of. Some of us need deep, penetrating healing from interior worlds that have been constructed by words that are not true or that are graceless or are lacking in forgiveness. Oh, we carry these around with us, don't we? The things that people have said, the things that people have done. Michelle and I watched a movie called Walk the Line. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's a, probably an adult-only film, I would say, but um, it's the story about Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash and Jude Carter. Johnny Cash became a pretty famous singer, sang some pretty incredible songs. But one of the things that this movie, Walk the Line, does is um, shows how Johnny Cash's earliest, most formative years were powerfully instrumental in how he began living after that. His relationship with his father was incredibly damaged because his father could see no good in him. His father doesn't affirm him, doesn't accept him, and in fact says incredibly harmful things to him. When Johnny Cash's older brother dies, this is based, of course, on the true story, when his brother dies um, in a table saw accident, his father says to Johnny Cash, and it's a very poignant movie, moment in this movie, he says to him, where were you? The wrong son died. He tells Johnny, the wrong son died. Johnny leaves home in his late teens and immediately begins medicating his pain with drugs and alcohol and women. He looks for any way to feel better. We do have interior worlds and they can dictate much of our behavior and we need redemption from these interior worlds by hearing different words. Sisters and brothers, the simple point that I'm just trying to make here from a theological perspective is that very really and truly, words make worlds, most foundationally. And I think the, where the rubber hits the road for us in this sermon then is in this way. We human beings generally, and we Christians in particular, must therefore pay very, very close attention to words. Very close attention to words. In fact, what I would like to argue here from this pulpit this morning is that we as Christians must pay attention to what we speak, when we speak, where we speak, how we speak, and why we speak. Taking for granted that we are the who 
It's the who, what, when, where, why, and how of speech. Scripture, actually, given that this is such an important topic, speaks to every single one of these elements. They're all important because our words create worlds. Now, I'm going to look at each and every one of those. Who, what, when, where, why, how. But if you've just swallowed your gum because you think you're going to be here for an hour, which indeed you probably would be, I'm only going to deal with the first one this morning and with quite some brevity, with the what. We must pay attention to what we speak. Most basically, we must ask ourselves, does what I say serve to bring about beauty, order, and life, or its reverse. Because the truth is, is that our words can bring about good worlds, beautiful worlds, ordered worlds, or the opposite as well. God is light and truth, Scripture teaches us, in Him there's no darkness at all, no lies. So when God speaks, as we see in Genesis 1, the darkness is overcome, the chaotic waters are pushed back, and indeed a world of beauty, order, and life come into being. A world that is splendidly hospitable to life. And by the way, friends, the point is underscored here by its opposite. When do the chaotic waters of Genesis 1-2 come back rushing into the world once again? I'll give you a hint. Five chapters later. In the story of Noah and the ark, the story of Noah and the ark or the days of Noah, is really a story about the return of tohu vabohu. It's the return of the chaotic waters. It's uncreation. But how does that uncreation come about? God just actualizes what is already realized by the people of that day. What are we told? What's the synopsis of the people of that day? Now, every thought of their heart was evil always, continually. How do you get to the point where your thoughts are evil always, continually? Well, you get to the point where you can't think a good thought because your language has been completely corrupt. All the words that you have embraced are fallacious. They're false. They're corrupted. Tohu vabohu, a state of uncreation, comes back upon the world because the inhabitants of the world of that day have embraced a false word. They have not embraced the truth of God. And so... They have a culture where women are thought by men to be objects that can be kidnapped and taken. If you look at the text, you'll see that. And other humans are simply viewed as somebody to be conquered. It's a world of complete and utter social chaos. It's a world overcome by chaotic waters. And so what this means is that we as Christians must do all that we can to speak the truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. Because words make worlds or unmake them, reduce them to chaos. Here's two more examples from Scripture of this principle. Amos. The prophet Amos, speaking the word of God, rails against Israel because Israel, especially the leaders and elite, have abandoned the word of God, his teachings in exchange for a plush life. Instead of helping the sacred poor and needy, they crush them underfoot. Instead of having a care for true scales and administering true justice, the rich favor and protect their own. And as a consequence of not letting justice roll down like a river, 
As a consequence, in other words, of abandoning God's truth and embracing lies and living them, Amos says this in chapter 8. And just pay attention to the imagery here. Because Israel has abandoned God's word, the whole land will rise like the Nile. Does that sound like the return of chaotic waters? It will be stirred up and then sink like the river Egypt. It will make the sun go down and darken the earth in broad daylight. The light will be replaced with darkness. You hear the imagery there? Jeremiah does the exact same thing and with even more telling language. In Jeremiah 4.23, when after lamenting and decrying and offering a Jeremiah, that's where that word come from, by the way, over Israel's sin, they're once and again abandoning God's word and wisdom as a people. The Lord says these words to Jeremiah. And again, pay attention to the language. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled at doing evil. They do not know how to do good. Remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We're getting echoes back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 at this point. Thus I looked, because they're skilled at evil and not at doing good, thus I looked at the earth, and it was, any guesses at this next phrase? Tohu vabohu. It's the only other time in the entirety of Scripture that this phrase is used. Because of the functioning of human being, the fate of the world is not very good. It's going to be reduced to tohu of a bohu, formless and void. I looked at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. You see how it's the unraveling, the undoing of the creation that God has done? All because human beings have disconnected themselves from the truth and embraced a lie. They are not living in accord with reality as God constructed it. They want to create their own reality. And in time, it leads to tohu vabohu. It leads to chaos. It leads to the return of the chaotic waters. This is, again, why it's so important to tell the truth, to cling to the truth, to tell the truth, or as Jordan Peterson likes to say it, tell the truth, or at least don't lie. And I think there's some wisdom in that because there are times when I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what my truth is. So the best we can do in those instances is maybe just try not to lie. Just don't lie. Commit to yourself you won't lie. That's a good place to start. You may not always know the truth, but at least don't lie. I think that's good advice. I read two harrowing books that illustrates the principle that our untrue words unmake the world. Um, as I was on sabbatical this past spring and summer, both stories are about two young women who suffered horrendously at the hands of liars. The first book is entitled My Secret Sister. It's a true story about two sisters who never know about each other's existence until they're well into their 50s. The one, Jenny, was given up for adoption by her mother because her mother was young and unmarried. And so her existence had to be kept a secret. In other words, her birth was surrounded in lies. She is sent from Britain to a family in the U.S. She's adopted by them. The other, Helen, is kept by her mother and father, although she's never told that her father is actually her stepfather because her mother had had an affair. So secrets are piled on secrets at the beginning of these girls' lives. And then they just continue on in that way. 
with Jenny never being told or very late by her adopted parents that she was actually adopted. And then with Helen as she is made to endure the horrors of being beaten by her stepfather who hates her because she is not his and she doesn't even know this. The story really is so heart-touching and difficult because it's a chronicle of the chaos that lies create. But then it's also redemptive because it's a chronicle of the beauty that letting the light of, shine, of truth shine through creates as Helen discovers the truth and the sisters finally reunite when they're in their 50s. It's beautiful. And the second book that I read that plays with the theme of lies as it impact a young girl's life is the book written by Yeonmi Park, a North Korean girl, also about her life entitled In Order to Live. It tells about Yeonmi's life in North Korea, a system entirely built on lies and that punishes its citizens most severely with starvation and imprisonment and a harsh caste system. Life there was hell for Yeonmi, a struggle almost entirely to merely survive but not, by not starving or freezing to death or being killed by the watchful government. And it tells of how Yeonmi escapes North Korea only to get to China and then again by a series of lies, a pack of lies that she falls prey to with her mother, she and her mother are sold as sex slaves. She summarizes her situation well when she describes the man who said he would help her and his mother. She describes this guy this way. Hong Wei was not his real name, but then he lied about everything. He told me he was 26, but he was actually 32 years old. He didn't know my real age because the broker, Ying Fang, told him I was 16. Nobody told the truth. When nobody tells the truth, a situation of chaos begins to arise in the world. The opposite, however, when we return to the truth, when we return to the Word of God, which connects us to reality as He intended it, then the opposite happens. Worlds of beauty, order, and life arise. It is for this reason, by the way, that the psalmist in Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Psalter that we have been reading at our dinner table, slowly for the last three months, I think, the longest psalm in the Psalter spends page after page after page extolling the beauty of God's word and its benefits. Because, precisely because, God's word makes the world and worlds of beauty, order, and life, literally for cultures, and for individual lives, for individual humans. Here's a couple examples. The psalmist says, Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, O Lord, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will obey your laws forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom because I have your precepts. The word of God brings freedom. It's life. He says again, Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. You see the connection between God the creator making a world and the commands remaking us as human beings. Again, oh, how I love your laws, O oh Lord. I meditate on them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Words make worlds, folks, for good or for ill. And according to Scripture, if they are connected to God's Word, His truth, it will be good. If not, 
it will bend towards the chaotic. It's for this reason, then, in conclusion, that we owe Jesus all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise, because all our words are not always from God. And thus, we all of us contribute to bringing about chaos in the world. We have all of us fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus, Jesus is called the Word of God in John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And in his earthly life then, as Jesus resolves only to live and speak God's Word, he brings about he begins to bring about a world of incredible beauty, of incredible order, and incredible life. In fact, allowing himself to be broken on the cross, Jesus brings in a whole new world, which is to say a whole new creation, which is why John moves from the cross where Jesus says, it is finished, tetelestai, it's his last word from the cross. It echoes the words of the author of Genesis, on the seventh day, God finished the, wor- the uh, creating that he had begun to do. And then it goes from there into a garden at the crack of day on the first day of a new week. The word Jesus brings in a new creation, brings in a new world, and invites us into it. So all glory be to Jesus. Just one question to leave you with as you go home. What kinds of words have you been speaking lately? Are they words that seek to bring life, beauty, and order? Or are they bringing something else into the world? Let us pray. Lord, I, help, I pray that you would help us to partner with Jesus. Your word become flesh. Help your word in us also to become flesh. Sometimes we want to turn flesh into words again mere God talk, but help us, Lord, truly to live out the vision that you have for us as humans so that we may bring about beauty, order, and life. Forgive us when we fail to do this, Lord. None of us come here and (laughs) suggest that we have arrived. We know we haven't, but we do ask that you would let us be a church like you intended the nation of Israel to be, that when the world looks at us, they would say, wow, look at how this people lives. Look at the laws that they have taken unto themselves. Look at their wisdom and how it does bring about a beautiful world. Give us your spirit now, Lord, as we enter into a new day and into a new week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.